Welcome to the 2023 World PICU Awareness Week podcast on sepsis. Created by the European Society of Pediatric Neonatal Intensive Care and promoted by the World Federation of Pediatric and Critical Care Societies. Each episode will host a short interview with key European opinion leaders on preventing and managing pediatric sepsis in PICU and NICU. Hello, everyone. My name is Akash Teep. I'm a pediatric intensivist at King's College Hospital in London, and I'm the Chair of Scientific Affairs for the European Society of Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care, ESPNIC. So I'll be hosting this episode, and during today's podcast, I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Ron Daniels, who's an adult intensive care consultant from Birmingham in the UK, and importantly, he's the Executive Director of the UK Sepsis Trust and the Vice President of the Global Sepsis Alliance. He's a role model for a number of us, including myself. And before we start, thank you, Ron, for all what you do. Thank you for all what you do for sepsis. That's very kind, Akash. It's probably too kind. I think probably more illustrative than the generous introduction is that I founded the UK Sepsis Trust. I I simply became a little bit tired of seeing people die needlessly from sepsis. So this is a real passion of mine. But thank you. Thank you. So this podcast is being recorded as a part of the Pediatric Intensive Care World Awareness Week organized by WIFPIX, and we from Europe have chosen sepsis as a theme for this year. So welcome, Ron, to this podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to explore how you got involved in setting up this charity, as you rightly mentioned, the UK Sepsis Trust, and how can organizations support sepsis prevention and care in pediatrics. So Ron, let's start. What inspired you to start the UK Sepsis Trust and what all activities does this trust do? Well, I've already alluded to this when I interrupted you uh, during your kind introduction, but really what started this was a culmination of just one too many patients. And as you rightly said, I work in the adult intensive care rather than pediatrics, but it was just one too many, the straw that broke the camel's back, to use an English expression, that set me on this path. And I remember it very, very clearly, the individual case. It was a young man. His name was Jem, short for Jeremy. His name was Jem Abbotts. He was only 37, and he had two young children, Tom and Emily, and a wife, Karen. And as he lay dying in my intensive care unit, and and really the story behind this will be familiar to everybody listening, he'd developed his illness in the community, he'd been seen by various health professionals, he eventually came to hospital maybe 48 hours later, and there we didn't um, identify sepsis quickly, we didn't treat it appropriately, and he lay dying in my intensive care unit. The route to the intensive care unit was avoidable, but once he was in the intensive care unit, he received everything we had and we couldn't save him. And I remember very clearly following Karen down the hospital corridor, knowing I was about to take her into the relatives interview room and tell her that her fit, strong husband wasn't coming home and that she would have to go home and tell Tom and Emily that daddy wasn't coming home, all from a condition that he didn't need to die from. This story has a happy ending. So Karen is a good friend of mine. At the time of recording, I last saw Karen a couple of weeks ago. She's remarried. Tom and Emily are now in successful careers with the relationships of their own. And Jem has a legacy through the UK Sepsis Trust. Yes, so Ron, as I said, I have been working with you with all all the things what you do. And I've seen what all uh, the difference with UK Sepsis Trust has made overall, both to pediatrics and both to adults. So again, thank you. 
Ron, we, we know that, you know, we all do sepsis awareness at all levels. We as healthcare professionals, professional bodies, what we use, do is we use our expertise to gather evidence. We make this evidence-based guidelines. So my question here is, where do you think lies the responsibility of the organization to make sure these guidelines are followed, the surveillance is done, and sepsis cases, very importantly, are accurately coded and recorded? Because you know what we might see is just a tip of the iceberg. So where do you think is the responsibility? So I think an organization like the Sepsis Trust can add huge value to organizations like the NHS and other healthcare service providers working hand in hand with academic guidelines groups. We both know, Akash, that writing an academic guideline, such as the brilliant Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, only addresses a part of the problem. It will be accessed and read by pediatric intensivists and adult intensivists like you and I, but it's probably not going to be accessed and at least not read in full by emergency physicians, busy physicians and attendings on the ward and so forth. So there needs to be a degree of translation. And I see an organisation like the UK Sepsis Trust adding value to those statutory and learned societies in three ways. The first is not directly related to your question, so I'll deal with that quickly, is providing support to people affected. So we help parents, we help children who've been affected by sepsis. We have support nurses and counsellors and psychologists that we can help them to understand what's happened to them. But moving back to your question, there's two key ways in which we help. The first is translating academic guidelines into operational tools for practice. And you know, Akash, you've worked with us over the years in developing the Pediatric Sepsis 6, which is In essence, it's a distillation of the academic guidance. It's taking out those tasks that a non-specialist health professional, often a junior health professional, can deliver very rapidly at the bedside or even in the back of an ambulance or in the patient's home. So, So that's one important way in which we help. But to come more directly to your question, it's around awareness. We both know that febrile illness in children is incredibly common and listeners will of course know that the vast majority of febrile illness is benign and self-limiting and does not need antimicrobial therapy even. It's how we identify that one child among the thousand children who has a benign self-limiting illness who has infection. And thankfully, in high-income countries, sepsis in children is not as common as it is in lower-income countries, but we still have this problem. This is, to use another English expression, it's a needle in the haystack. We've got to find this rare child who's critically ill. To do that is about health professional education. It is about providing those tools to health professionals to help them to spot sepsis and act quickly. But it's also about empowering families, carers, guardians, parents, to advocate for their child. Because listeners will be well aware that a parent or a guardian knows that child and their normal behavior better than any health professional. And if we can empower those parents to firstly just ask, could it be sepsis, if they've never seen that child this unwell before? And secondly, if they're very worried, they're worried the child's critically ill, to look for a set of symptoms to empower them to access healthcare very rapidly, then we will be able to save lives. I think you've hit the uh, what call it the hammer on the on the nail head here by saying parental anxiety and parental concerns should be taken very seriously. And it's a parent who knows the child so very well than you and me who might see a child only in a snapshot. 
So Ron, you've been to different hospitals, you've gone worked with different trusts. Where do you think is the difference between a proactive organization and, if I may use the word, a less proactive organization? Well, we've seen, and in the UK, there's been a recent television documentary on the, on the brilliant work that's been done at King's in terms of simulation training. I think what the reality is, there are pockets of excellence everywhere, but it's difficult to identify a single organization that does everything well, because there are elements that are essential to the delivery of high-quality care that are sometimes beyond our control. So resource is critically important. The availability of well-trained staff, we know that not just in the UK, but in most European countries, staff skill mix is a significant problem. So, So that's one aspect. We've got a high caseload, and we've got patients who often are transferred to emergency departments under their parents' own steam, in in their own cars, because there's a long wait for ambulances and so forth. So some of these things are outside the control of hospital clinicians. And we have to understand that to deliver excellent demands that hospital clinicians work with pre-hospital services, with community-based services, and with human resource services to be able to deliver. And of course, that costs money. But what we are able to do, what we can directly influence is training, it's pathways, it's having the right culture. Because again, listeners will be aware that it's one thing having health professionals who've accessed the right training, who've read the Surviving Sepsis Campaign guidelines, who have a paediatric sepsis six tool in front of them. But it's another thing having a culture that supports them. And I think a strong culture Thinking about where I most commonly encounter children, which is the emergency department. I work in a a, a district general hospital, so the adult intensivist will help with the resuscitation of the baby or the child. So when I go down to an ED, I see a healthy culture. It's a culture where people don't get frustrated at healthy, well children being pre-alerted in. It's a culture where health professionals know that it's right and it's okay and it's appropriate to see a hundred relatively well children that in a bad culture might be perceived as wasting our time because then we can just identify that one child in time who needs urgent attention. So I think to summarize, it is about uh, training. It is about health professional education. It is about health professionals being empowered to think sepsis. It's also about organizational culture. And that can be within a department or within a healthcare provider organization as a whole. But then we have to acknowledge there are these things that need a lot more effort, sometimes outside our direct control, which is around the resources and the pathways to hospital. I think, Ron, you answered my next question, which would have been, we are still seeing disasters, right? Whether we like it, but don't like it. And my question would have been, where do you think the problem is and how could organizations help in sepsis prevention and management, especially in children? I think you have addressed it. Yes, we need to create that culture where everybody's empowered to think about sepsis. And once you get that empowerment and there's a culture around you, would you want to add anything to this question? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, and I think that is really important. And it's wonderful to hear that we're, we're on the same page here. We were already thinking the same thing. I think it's about the next level for parental empowerment because I can't see healthcare systems like the NHS having a reduced caseload or increasing staffing levels anytime soon. You know, there is a huge burden on healthcare in most countries around the world. So we've got to come back to this empowerment of parents. And I think we need to think about how we take that to the next level. And that's something that we're looking to do with the UK Sepsis Trust. We need to get 
into those parents' hands, not only a card or an online resource with a list of symptoms, but devices. Now, I think fairly simplistically about technology, so I'm going to describe it as an app, but it might not be, but a resource that is a medical device that can empower parents to act. It shows them what signs, what symptoms to look for. It looks to different groups, such as different ethnicities with different skin tones and has resources to help parents identify skin color changes and rashes in their child, for example. Teaches them to look at how to evaluate the respiratory rate, how to feel the skin temperature and so forth. If we can get this right and deliver that resource into parental hands, and this is something the UK Sepsis Trust has been working on with universities from around the country, and we're really close to achieving it, we just need the funds to do it, then we truly will save lives. Where we see harm arise, it's so multifactorial, it would be naive for any listener to think this is just about training health professionals in hospital. As we've agreed, that's a part of it. But getting this partnership between sensible, aware parents who are empowered and intelligent, well-trained health professionals who are empowered and well-resourced is key to saving lives. I think, Ron, again, you know, very sensible thinking about how the partnership between parents and healthcare professionals can go a long way in saving lives. Now, as you know, Ron, we, we always are in an evolution process of making the guidelines, revising them when new guidance comes. And as you know, that the Academy of uh, Royal Medical Colleges have changed their guidelines regarding the use of antimicrobials. So my question is, what is the change for the listeners? Why do you think that was necessary? And how do you think the organizations can help in implementing astute antimicrobial? This is a really interesting point. And I think that the main change is rooted in this, this anxiety around antimicrobial resistance. But it's not just that. It's also around placing a child or an adult on the wrong pathway and having this sort of blinkered view that it has to be sepsis. We both know, and listeners will know, that there are conditions out there that can mimic sepsis. And yes, occasionally we'll see a child and they have purpura fulminans and they obviously have sepsis, but more often than not, sepsis is part of a differential diagnosis. And then when we add to that the fact that there is good evidence for antibiotics within one hour, well, there's moderate evidence for antibiotics within one hour in children or adults with very severe sepsis or septic shock, but there's less good evidence in people who are a little bit less unwell. I think that's what prompted, firstly, the adult surviving sepsis campaign, and secondly, the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges to say, if the patient's very sick, we're going to stick with one hour for antibiotics. If the patient's less sick, we're going to allow a broader window of three hours. Now, the ethos of that is sensible. There's no good evidence that one hour is a magic number. Within three hours, the idea is that we can have a senior clinical review, we can have a full set of blood tests, we can do some imaging, and we can learn more about this patient. But the reality is a bit different. And I think if this can be safely implemented, it is absolutely the right thing to do. I've got two slight hesitations around the three-hour window. One is minor and one is major. My minor hesitation is that in many organizations, and my district general hospital, I work in two hospitals, one's larger, one's a DGH. In my district general hospital, I usually won't have any blood tests back within three hours. So my decision-making won't be positively influenced at three hours compared to one hour. So that's my minor hesitation. My major hesitation is the way patients flow through our healthcare systems. If we say give antibiotics within one hour, that health professional knows it's their job. 
if we say give it within three hours, that health professional can easily assume that the next person to see the patient, it will be their job. My concern, and we have to mitigate this, is that a three-hour window for the less sick child might easily become a 14-hour window because that child might not be seen by a health professional who's a competent prescriber until the post-date ward round. And we have to mitigate against that rather than implement this blindly. So Ron, you mentioned the word less sick and more sick. So do you think there is this is to do with the early warning scores you're talking about or are you talking about the severity of sepsis based on sepsis 3? How would you classify this less sick versus the more sick? Oh, this is so multifactorial, isn't it? And, and yes, we've got paediatric early warning scores, just as we have a national early warning score for adults in the UK. And we're just about to launch a, a maternal early warning score that's a national. So early warning scores are a huge part of this. But listeners will know early warning scores are far from perfection. And they don't differentiate according to cohort, according to underlying comorbidities, according to how well a baby's thriving, according to other factors. And so we apply a one-size-fits-all early warning score to very, very variable populations. And that's one hesitation around recommending early warning scores as the only factor. So they have to be supported by clinical judgment. It's that, that experience that comes with years and months in the job that just helps us to identify that sick child. Now, that itself is fallible, and we see the failing of that in lots of the adverse incidents. So then we come to the other factors. Parental concern we've mentioned, I think that's a really important one in determining how sick a child is. And of course, when we say parent, we also mean carer or guardian. But it's also about those biomarkers. It's about those laboratory data. Again, none of them are perfect in isolation. And it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if we had the sepsis test and the sepsis risk stratification test. But the reality is we don't. It's about building a picture about this child. It's about not only looking at their observations when they arrive in front of a health professional, but looking at the trajectory over time. It's about listening to the parent. And it's about looking for senior help if we can and taking the child seriously enough to send off the labs and the biomarkers we want and reviewing them in a timely manner with those. Absolutely. If you remember a few years back, NHS started to do the sequin, the Commissioning for Quality and Innovation, and we were mandated to report cases of sepsis, how we were, how we were charting them, how we were managing them. Do you think an initiative like that helped? And if yes, what infrastructure do we need or can we extrapolate it to non-NHS organizations as well? So for non-UK listeners and for listeners who are blissfully unaware of the secret in the UK, um, just to describe what it meant, it meant that we had to screen people who presented with elevated early warning scores for sepsis, unless there was an obvious alternative cause. And it meant that we had to, if they had a red flag, we had to deliver antibiotics within one hour. And there was another aspect to it, which is we needed to demonstrate that we'd had a sensible review decision around the antibiotics within the first couple of days. So in principle, this was all very, very appropriate. And we saw huge process improvements with the sequin. So yes, I think the sequin did a lot of good. We saw that the rate of delivery for antibiotics, we should acknowledge that this was only around just over three quarters of English hospitals participated. But on a broadly national level, in 2016, around one in three patients got antibiotics within one hour. By 2019, largely thanks to the sequin, that was 80%. So the process improved hugely. 
We saw similar data from New York State, for example, where there was a statewide initiative to improve sepsis care. We saw an association with reduced mortality in New York State from around, and this was across the uh, population, this wasn't just pediatric, from around 30% to around 20%. So the process in New York State was strongly linked to improve outcomes. And we've seen similar in New South Wales and in Ireland and through the Canadian Sepsis Network and other areas where improvement initiatives have improved process. And we've seen either surrogate or linked association with improved outcomes. So yes, it achieved good. But with sepsis, there's always the potential to achieve population harm through the fueling of antimicrobial resistance. And I think that was one anxiety that was leveled at the sequin on sepsis here in England. Now, I think it's really important that we reinforce that in none of these regions or countries that we've mentioned has there been any evidence that prioritizing sepsis has resulted in increased antimicrobial use or increasing antimicrobial resistance. There simply is not the evidence there. We looked to the data, and again, this was a surrogate rather than a direct study, but as the sequin evolved, we looked at the data from the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. And despite the fact that there had been a letter in the Lancet which alleged that antibiotic use in emergency departments had doubled as a consequence of the sequin on sepsis, you look at the data from the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and although it does technically show that, what they really should have looked at with that letter was total hospital consumption of antimicrobials. And that really didn't change very much at all. It increased by 1%, which is of slight concern, but certainly not a doubling of antibiotic use. So what I would argue is the sequin did is it resulted in a change in the geography of administration of antimicrobials. It brought them forward in the patient journey to the ED. So reducing delays and possibly improving outcomes without the adverse consequence of increasing total hospital consumption of antibiotics. So to summarize a very long answer, yes, I think the sequin achieved good, but I think we cannot address sepsis in isolation from looking at the unintended consequence of fueling of AMR. I very interestingly read both your, the communications which were published for and against. I read you and I completely agree that we have to take the whole picture and not just in isolation one particular component. So last question, Ron, is what do you think is and should be the role and responsibility of a bigger umbrella organization like NHS England and the government, very importantly, to firm up all the good work which you and others are doing? You know, we are putting in a lot of effort, but at the end of the day, there's somebody else sitting above us. What do you think their role should be? So to my mind, this is around acknowledging that for all societies, and this is not just the UK, death from infection usually is as a consequence of sepsis. So we know that the World Health Organization have highlighted that sepsis is responsible for one in five deaths worldwide. It's responsible for more deaths than cancer. So this is a public health catastrophe potentially, particularly as antimicrobial resistance increasingly comes to the fore, and we cannot afford not to address it. So healthcare systems like NHS England need to apply resource to improving outcomes from sepsis, just as they do for outcomes from heart attack, from stroke, and from cancer. This is around ensuring that resource is available. Now, in some healthcare systems, that might be through commissioning for excellence. Now, I'm not convinced that we should deal with sepsis in isolation from other aspects of infections management. It's my view that healthcare systems like NHS England need to prioritize infection management. 
That includes rapid treatment and recognition of sepsis. It includes infection prevention. It includes antimicrobial stewardship. And that we should commission for excellence in those areas. So this does become around training of health professionals. It does become around measurement, not just using coded administrative data, but around using patient-level granular data to really understand the patient better and their recovery profile. But it's also around the better integration of point-of-care diagnostics into clinical systems. It's also around better measurement of pathogen identification, of antimicrobial consumption, not just of individual risk classes, but across the board, so that we can truly understand this problem of infection management. And if we don't do it, then this will become an existential crisis to mankind that is more pressing, more urgent, even than climate change. Absolutely. So thank you, Ron. It was, as always, a pleasure, delight speaking to you. And you know, you can make out every word you say has got the word passion in it. So thank you so much for, as I said, you've inspired a lot of us. So thank you for doing what you do. And with that, we come to the end of this podcast. Thank you again. Thank you so much for the invitation.